Coming up on Art Palace. You will say but she was bisexual, just she just loved yeah. in general. Yeah. Uh, without any restrictions in that sense. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool people are the past guests with whom we've discussed LGBTQ issues. In our first clip from episode 20, I'm talking with Catalina Cuervo, the opera singer who was singing the role of Frida Kahlo in Cincinnati Opera's production of Frida. We had a great discussion about Frida's life, including her sexuality. So this is your second time playing Frida? Yes, uh, second production. Second production. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, well, yeah, <laughs> this this yes, time. Yes. Yeah, right. Uh, when, when, when did you first play her? We did uh, the same production in Detroit in 2015. Okay. Yeah, Just with Michigan Michigan Opera Theater. So you've been spending so it's been two years now with uh, with Frida. Yeah, we did we did it uh, back two years ago. We did it in three different theaters, mm -hmm. um, about uh, eleven or twelve performances. It was a, a long run, and then I kind of put it on hold a little bit, and then we get we are back at it uh, this year with with Cincinnati Cincinnati Opera. Very excited to be able to play that role again. Because for me, it's a dream come true because I admired her long way before mm -hmm. I even got this part. Yeah. Uh, when I went to Mexico, I was fascinated with her house and I went and I bought every single thing about her books, um, uh, all kinds of things about her. I was fascinated with her, fascinated with her before I even got the part. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm just kind of um, curious about, I, I listened to just a little bit of, uh, I think the concert suite, uh, just before we were talking and I was just trying to think in what ways do you think the music reflects the spirit of Frida and, or, you know, are there parallels between the music in the opera and her art? Definitely, definitely. And, um, I think this is, this is, this is where you see that Robert Javier Rodriguez, the composer did an amazing job with this music mm -hmm. because, you, when you hear the opera, you just hear it. You don't see anything. You just hear it. You immediately feel in the presence of her. And the way he captured that was by the, the composition of the voice. So I'm going to get a little bit more in detail about it. L just like the portraits where you see Frida very strong, where we were talking about the Beyonce look, mm -hmm. you know, where a lot of her own portraits that she, her own, uh, that she did and her, uh, photos, show a very strong Frida, um, and very, almost very serious Frida. But on the other hand, if you see videos of her, uh, with Diego or with her friends and stuff like that, you see a very loving, almost delicate, sweet Frida. So everybody talked about these two personalities. It's not that she was bipolar, it's that she was everything. She was both strong and weak and she was both a woman and a man and she was you know like she was like that all the time she she was sweet when she had to be sweet and she was strong when she had to be strong 
And the way Roberto Javier Rodriguez put that in the music is that I actually sing with two different voices. I do uh, many parts of it. I sing it in my chest voice, which for those that don't know what the chest voice is, is basically your regular voice, the one where you sing pop music mm-hmm. or you when you sing happy birthday, that's <laughs> your chest voice. And uh, musical theater, for example, everything that is Broadway is sang with your chest voice. Okay, so I sing whole scenes with my chest voice which show a more sensual, stronger Frida. And then there's whole scenes where I sing in my lyric voice. My lyric, lyric voice is the one of the soprano, my, my opera voice. Mm-hmm. And it's completely different. And those scenes, I am the more delicate, loving um, Frida. And he did that. So it's, it's difficult vocally because I have to sing in both voices and be switching from one scene to the other. Or even in the same scenes, I switch voices. And it sounds like two different people are singing one line. And it is not that. It's, it's just capturing Frida's uh, personality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does the, when you, you kind of were sort of hinting at this when you said she's both a woman and a man. And Frida is, a, you know, maybe I shouldn't say famously bisexual artist, but... Uh-huh. Um, you know, th- that's something that's certainly important to me. And I-, I was sort of curious if that gets talked about in the opera, because I also know it's from 1995. So I wasn't yes, sure. Yes, yes. Um, if, we talk about or 1991, it? right? Uh, 1991. 91, yes. We talk about it. We actually have a beautiful scene. It's absolutely gorgeous. You know, like it's one of my favorite scenes where where we show that that she had both men and women as lovers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frida believed that sexuality didn't have to be encaptured in that, oh, I am a woman that likes men or I am a woman that likes women or no, it was like sex, sex is sex. And, uh, and she enjoyed her body and she enjoyed uh, sex to the point where for her, men and women could make her feel good and she could make both men and women feel good too. So, you will say, but she was bisexual. Just she just loved yeah. in general, yeah, uh, without any restrictions in that sense. And we do portray it in our, our opera too. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. It's great to hear. I was curious about that. Yes. Next, we have a clip from episode 60 with Kevin Allison, creator of The Risk Podcast, explaining how coming out inspired his podcast and changed his life. Well, we haven't actually talked anything about Risk at all. So, <laughs> How did you start making the podcast and how did you start making Risk? Well, you know, I realized I was gay when I was a little kid and it was... You know, that's an unusual experience. Most people begin who are gay begin to realize it, you know, in the high school, Mm. college, round about that time. But I was hyper aware of it, like from the beginning of consciousness. Yeah. Which, which I had by all, you know, uh, objective reality, a, a, uh, happy childhood, you know, Mm. uh, but, I grew up terrified about this thing that I was keeping a secret the whole time. You know, my family was very devoutly Catholic and everything, and so I was afraid I was going to go to hell, and I was afraid that if anyone found out about this part of me that I'd lose all my friends and family. It was uh, it was very scary, that, that aspect of my life when I was a child. So I 
as the years went by, of course, I did start coming out to people in high school and college and yada, yada. But I grew up very fascinated and obsessed and had a complex around this whole idea of coming out. Mm. Which sides of my personality do, do I allow people to see when? And when I became a comedian... Uh, after college, I felt like, oh, I have to have as much control over that as possible. I have to like be whatever Hollywood wants me to be. And when my sketch comedy group broke up, that just wasn't working for me. I wasn't able to figure out when I might seem too gay in a character while I was performing or when I might be coming off as too Midwestern because I am, <laughs> uh, or when I might seem a little bit too absurdist because I'm such a comedian. Etc. Etc. So I was always second guessing myself about the sides of my personality I was showing to people, and it was really shooting myself in the foot. I got more and more stage fright and more and more social anxiety about this over the years. And during the twelve years between the state my sketch comedy group breaking up mm -hmm. and two thousand nine when I created Risk. I was just a starving artist. I was, you know, I was doing a lot of cater waitering. I was drinking too much. I was just battling with stage fright and just not getting anywhere in my career. Then in 2009, I did a show, a one-person show. It was five kooky characters, like I was used to doing from my sketch comedy mm -hmm. days. And all five characters, the theme was that they had screwed up their careers. <laughs> so it was obviously trying to be kind of autobiographical, but in, in a kooky, character-y way, right? Right. And Michael Ian Black, who had been a member of the state, came to see the show. And afterwards, I said, what'd you think? And he said, I think the whole audience just wishes you would have dropped the mask. Just stop acting like these characters. Get up on stage and tell your own true stories. And I said, oh, I'm just afraid that I'm too too gay sometimes and too Midwestern seeming at some times and too absurdist at other times. And it, it feels too risky to be the real me. And he said, risk, that's the word. Keep that word in mind. Because if you feel like you're taking a risk, it probably means you're opening up to people and then people will start opening up to you. So the very next week I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell a true story in front of an audience instead of playing a crazy kooky character. And I was 39 years old. So it was weird that this was, this was the first time I was doing this in this way, but I did tell a true story story at a true storytelling show that week. And I was terrified. I felt like it was so risky. It was a sexual story. So it was very revealing, yeah. you know? Uh, and I was amazed because while I was telling the story to this audience that night, I did come to those places where I was second guessing myself. I did come to the places where I was like, Ooh, that sounded too gay or, Oh, I sounded like such an Ohio boy then, or, you know, whatever it was, <laughs> but it didn't matter. They kept leaning in closer to me and, and listening deeper and deeper because I was telling the truth. And I felt this connection with the audience that I hadn't felt on stage in years. So I walked away from that show that night and it all kind of came together after years and years and years of failure. 
it, it just all clicked into place. I was like, this is what I should do. I should create a live show and a podcast called Risk, where people tell true stories that they never thought they'd dare to share in public. Everyone on the show should be kind of coming out about something or showing some side of their personality that they're not used to sharing in mixed company and exploring these moments in their lives that you know, they, they would otherwise be talking to a therapist about, you know, the most emotional or the most revealing or the most meaningful moments in their lives. Once I started studying storytelling shows, I started looking at This American Life and The Moth, mm-hmm. uh, which both had very popular, well, they still do, very popular podcasts as well as being on the radio. And so I was listening to a lot of their stuff and realizing, oh, they have to keep stuff very clean and not too emotional and politically correct and all these things. Whereas if I put out a podcast, I can let people speak in a much more unfiltered way yeah. uh, where there's nowhere where we have to fear to tread. You know, of course, on risk, we're extremely mindful about being compassionate about, you know, making sure the storytellers aren't being hateful toward anyone. But when it comes to sex or violence or or extremely emotional stories or scary stories or whatever. We go a lot of places on risk. Um, so I created this podcast and this live show. We just did it at a space called Ludlow Garage last night here in Cincinnati. The way it works is on the podcast, I'll announce, hey, Cincinnati, we're coming to town in three months. Pitch us your stories. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating because we'll get like 20 pitches or so and we'll kind of weed through them and say, well, does this sound like something we haven't heard before? Uh, And we'll start interviewing some of these folks and we'll start, you know, narrow it down to about eight and then to finally to four and start really working with those people. And it's interesting because in helping a person prepare a story, a lot of what you do is a little bit more like a therapist than yeah. like an editor. You know, you have to poke and prod people like, wait, how do you really feel about your mother? <laughs> or wait, 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 did you have ulterior motives when you said that? You know, th- those are the kind of questions that really get great stuff out of people. So yeah, Risk is now almost 10 years old. The podcast gets uh, over a million downloads per month. And we just put a book out this past summer as well, uh, as well as a little series that we just put out on Amazon of uh, some stories we put out on Amazon called This Can't Be Happening that you can listen to or download on your Kindle. So we're staying super, super busy. And then I also have this school that I created called The Story Studio. So we teach people how to do storytelling not just for the creative purpose of doing it on stage, like on risk, but also we do a lot of corporate workshops. Mm. Um, you know, some people will hear risk and they'll realize, whoa, these are not the kind of stories you could share in the office, you know, because they're very uncensored, but they also understand, oh, the basic principles of storytelling can be applied to other contexts, right? And especially in business situations, a lot of people need some help humanizing the things that they want to communicate, you know, uh, learning to speak instead of, of about processes and, and uh, data and, uh, you know, the history of projects. 
to make it about the people and the emotional impact of this or that on what the team is doing, you know? So it's been, you know, at the age of 39, I created risk and it completely transformed my life. Mm -hmm. Um, because so many people heard the show and were so moved by it that it developed this very passionate fan base and it became a way I could make a living finally. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a happy ending to at least the beginning of the story, which was that you were sort of lost in your career. Absolutely. So at least it, 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 it worked itself out that way. In the bonus episode from April 8th, 2018, we presented a live recording of the panel discussion that occurred after a screening of Difficult Love, a documentary about South African photographer Zanelli Muholi, who is an advocate for her community of LGBTQ women. Associate Curator of Photography, Nathaniel Stein, moderated the discussion with Heal and Build co-director Alexander Shelton and University of Cincinnati Department of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies professors Ash. Ashley Courier and Therese Migrant-Georges. Because it was a live recording, the audio is a bit rough, but I think the conversation was pretty important. I wonder if it might be a good time to tackle a question, which is one that I am always kind of obsessing over in my own uh, work, and that is, um, do you think that what Moholy's work does would be possible if she were not a member of the community that she is photographing? No. Can you explain that? Yeah, I can tell you why, because it took me three months to get to be able to, to do work with Forum for the Empowerment of Women for quite a while. Um, Mahalia's background, uh, she started working for Behind the Mask, a, a, the organization that's featured later in the film, the, the editor. It was a website that used to, that existed for uh, um, about 12 years, and it documented um, LGBTI um, organizing on the continent, African continent more broadly. Um, they lost funding. The website went defunct. So she, she split off from that organization with her then partner, who is a um, Jamaican woman who had a long history of anti-homophobic activism there, and they founded Forum for the Empowerment of Women. In the early, you know, late, early 2000s, um, they started documenting anti-lesbian rape and violence, um, uh, which Muholi uh, is one of the, the activists who coined the, it's a problematic term, corrective rape, um, which has been criticized by feminists um, in South Africa and, and elsewhere. Um, but one of the, they had, when this phenomenon began getting circulated outside South Africa, there were uh, U.S., Western European um, journalists coming into South Africa wanting to collect this narratives mm. of broken lesbian women. That's, that's what they wanted. Those are the visuals that they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, I mean, the organization put very strict parameters then on who could have access to the organization, who could have access to these stories and wanting to control Again, these stories that circulated. So it's actually a little dismaying in this film for me to see Millicent Geica in on um, portrayed. Right, um, she actually became the f- public face of a campaign uh, against corrective rape that a Cape Townian um, black lesbian activist organization called um, Luleke Siswe um, uh, mounted. 
and again, those images of Gaika's face, right? Um, and, and then, I mean, I appreciated the, you know, the whole restorative yeah. portraits of Gaika after the fact, but still the, the film is, make, is bridging this, um, you know, problem of like representing violence in a very mm-hmm. particular way. I mean, violence is, 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 is an undercurrent here. I mean, mm-hmm. that's Muholi's origins as, a, as an activist in combating, right? Um, specifically anti-lesbian violence, but again, so I, to answer your question, I don't think she could do this work if she weren't a member of the community. But are you saying that because of, because it, because of her access to the community and the trust it's her that ac- she has? It's her, it's her access. It's, I mean, one of the things you, so you asked, what, what, how was she a visual, visual activist? Mm-hmm. One of the things that she started doing when she was at Forum for the Empowerment of Women was get, was um, offering photography courses. So it's not just, it's again, teaching people a usable skill, mm-hmm. right, on the one hand, but then it's also arming women with, with cameras in, in townships, right? So if you see somebody with a, with a camera in the township, right, this is somebody who could document you doing, you know, doing things. Right. I mean, it's, it's putting them on notice. Like, we are taking, we are capturing your reality as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that, in that regard, I think it's a whole, um, yeah, I, I don't think she could get this, in, this intimacy and the trust. And if I may also add on to uh, what Ashley says, I think that what's uh, really amazing and, and striking about her work is the fact that it is infused with this sense of intimacy. I mean, it's not just a, she's not just documenting, she's not just documenting these li- lives. They also have, I mean, the, the portraits are, you, I think there's something that very much comes, you know, comes out of these pictures in terms of uh, the connections that she has with these people. But again, I think that there is this kind of like uh, intimate, I don't know how to, what to call it, but this kind of intimate depth, maybe, that's very much part of her work. And I think that is why also her work is so powerful, because it has not just this kind of um, documentary uh, you know, testimonial purpose, but it is again very uh, kind of like it's completely shaped and informed by the love also that she has for these people and by the love that she 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 knows exists between these people. Because so so I think that uh, the from an aesthetic viewpoint, I think that the the the, the these inside mm. knowledge uh, and personal. Um, kind of connection that she has with these people is like a kind of inherent part of, I mean, I think, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. an expert in any, in any way, but um, I, I, to me, it, it kind of, it, it's in many ways what the, I mean, to use a little bit of a maybe, a, you know, old-fashioned term, a kind of radiance, you know, the aura mm-hmm. of her work kind of comes from. It's this kind of profound, you know, humanity that mm-hmm. she, she, she experiences with, with these people. Uh, it's not just about them. I think she really kind of does the pictures with them. And uh, as she says, she doesn't like to use the word subject. Right. Also mm-hmm. because um, she, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't really, it doesn't accurately represent also not just the fact that these people are agents, but also the fact mm-hmm. that she has an actual relationship with you right. know, some of these, of these people. Right. I think many photographers who work in that sort of, Space or vein use words like collaborators or participants. Participants is, a, uh, I think, a, a common one. I think the reason why I ask this question, um, there, there are many reasons, but one of them is that I think that you know throughout the history of photography, it's been this sort of dream and goal that 
photography as a medium ha as a, as a medium has this power to to foment some kind of authentic and true understanding across boundaries of difference and power. Um, I think it's been uh, it's taken many different shapes over the history of the medium and, and uh, many different forms in terms of photographic practices. Um, but I think it's probably an open question as to how successful that is when it's practiced in different ways. And I would say, personally, I notice in, in recent times, there does seem to be this shift towards representation, uh, essentially self-representation, either giving members of one's own community the power to self-represent or making representations where the, the subject matter, in quotations, the participants, it is one's own community. Mm. Um, I, I've noted that to be a kind of a shift mm. in the way that um, I suppose you can say uh, a form of documentary photography is being conducted um, now. And I think that's, you know, you can see that from, from practitioners that I think would define themselves as activists, period. You know, they don't have a, necessarily a self, a desire to define themselves as artists or to function within an art world. Um, but you can also see it among people who definitely define themselves as artists and are finding ways to do their creative work by going to a community and you know, giving the people their cameras and working with those people to sort of shape the imagery that, that comes out of that type of work, which I think is a very interesting um, conversation across the, the sort of levels of, of photographic practice. In episode 46, I took a trip to Costume Storage to look at works by gay fashion designers with Adam McFarlane, curatorial assistant for fashion arts and textiles. Uh, so the, the last thing in the menswear that I want to look at is a collection of pieces, menswear pieces by John Bartlett. And John Bartlett is both a gay man and a Cincinnati native. Yeah. So he, and he, uh, some years ago, I think in the early 2000s, did an exhibition with us mm -hmm. and donated quite a bit of both menswear and womenswear. And so we have this great collection. And one of the uh, pieces that, uh, one of the collections that we have represented was essentially kind of in way, uh, inspired by prison. Okay. And so, and there was honestly this kind of bondage-esque, not in the sense of the Tom Ford leather, right? but this binding, this controlling. Yeah. And it's, so it's kind of an interesting, he, he does play a lot on um, different interpretations, different um, aesthetics, that kind of bridged the gap between gay and straight. Yeah. I remember that exhibition too. It was really interesting because, um, it was, um, and I think this was heavily influenced by him if I remember correctly. Um, but all of the male ma mannequins were lined up in the back of the exhibition right. and stacked like on three tiers. So they were all in rows like very rigid and orderly. And then the female um, mannequins were all like kind of out and more fluidly like placed through the gallery that you could kind of walk around. So he was sort of commenting on those differences of like the gender fashions and expectations in the sort of layout of the show too. Right. And so, yeah. And I, and he is someone that has done that within his designs as well. I mean, was there any, anything else you wanted to talk about or anything else we didn't talk about? Well, in terms of, one of the people that I haven't mentioned that actually is a more recent 
is Johnny Versace. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We should definitely uh, talk about Versace. So, uh, for anyone that doesn't remember this, Johnny Versace was a very openly gay man and was murdered in 90... Ooh. Oh, gosh, mid-90s, yeah, mid-late-90s. Yeah, I do not remember exactly. Uh, I remember it happening, yeah, happening uh, as a kid. Uh, so we do have one Johnny Versace piece, which is mostly in a box, but he was known for very pretty garish yeah. uh, prints, and both for uh, women's wear and men's wear. So we have a dress that's uh, kind of got a tutu skirt on it that has a lot of gold and glitz on it, uh, spaghetti straps with... Uh, rhinestones on it Mm -hmm. this is something i just was keep thinking about the idea of of taste and maybe this is coming back to the idea of camp but the idea of like i kind of wonder if that's a little bit of the part of the the sort of gay designer is, is is sort of wanting to sort of push like I get to say what's good taste, right? Like, right. and the idea of taste and the idea of preference are not that far from each other, right? Like, Absolutely. you know, the idea of, of being told that the thing you like is wrong or bad or unnatural or all of these things. And it's just like, well, it's just my taste, you know? And then to t- in the idea of taste and the way it sort of happens in art can also be, oppressive as well. Like the idea that like, well, this is good. This is good taste, obviously. And usually that's code for like, you know, basically you've, you have enough money, wealth, class, race, whatever, to basically put you in the know of what is good taste and what is bad taste. And so I think sometimes these designers are willingly sort of pushing that idea of like, what is good taste, you know? And challenging it by sort of like making these patterns like so big and so over the top and being like, well, I have the power now. I get to say what's good taste. And they didn't always wield it well, (laughs) in my opinion. (laughs) But that's what I love about it. I mean, I kind of love the idea of just like looking at something and being like, oh, that's so tasteless. I love it. Like, and you know, you mentioned like John Waters movies earlier. Oh, they are. That's the whole point is right. It's like. Of, of taking bad taste and sort of saying like, no, this is what I'm going to like, I'm going to celebrate bad taste and sort of, because it's also the underlying message is like, I don't want to be like you, right? Like I, I don't want to be like the straight world basically. <laughs> this is the underskirt for the Versace. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. In episode 50, I spoke with Jared O'Rourke, Director of Education at Wordplay Cincinnati. We had a conversation about the Chinese mural Winshu, Bodhisattva of Wisdom at a Writing Table, which led us to more personal topics of religion and family. And he has this sort of magnificent presence with this glowing orb of inspiration behind him. It's like, you know, there's so much um, going on. It's kind of interesting, too. We we, we mentioned a a little bit uh, about the lotus up in the corner. And I kind of, to me, and I, again, not an expert, um, but I do feel like as we move up this picture, um, we go kind of from earthly to divine right as you move up and there's something about that lotus which symbolizes rebirth um that feels to me a little bit symbolic and maybe less literally in this space i don't know if it's also above the sun 
Yeah, exactly. Is, and it's just, it's, it's interesting because it does sort of, because the image is worn away in parts, it can be hard to necessarily tell also, like maybe it does fit into this space in a very literal way. Like it's just part of the architecture painted on the wall behind it, which, which could be possible. I don't know. I, I could be wrong, right. but the way it also seems to be surrounded by the kind of swirling smoke of the yeah. flames here. Also, um, I don't know. Smoke always feels kind of spiritual to me. It's, mm-hmm ethereal and you know it's it's it can't be touched um yeah so it has those qualities it's probably the reason when you go to like a catholic church they bring out those incense swingers that's true you know true. it's got a and and it's like getting all your senses going you've got the smells <laughs> the sounds the lights <laughs> you know that's theater true. i mean i'm going strictly by movies that i've watched i was not raised catholic but i see what you're saying oh neither was i <laughs> yeah i know that's probably not right for me to say in cincinnati that i was not raised catholic but no I no i was uh, yeah, no, that's why that's sort of like my uh, part of my obsession with Catholicism uh-huh. is that like it was exotic, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like I went to like a rather Spartan Southern Baptist church that was <laughs> like, you know, decor was right. minimal. Yeah. And then I go to this, you know, a Catholic church. I'm like, they have paintings. Oh, they have sculptures. Huge. This is amazing. Yeah. Why don't we go here? You There's know, art. <laughs> it's so funny. I was I was raised. I was I'm not one now, but I was raised Jehovah's Witness. And um, someone I dated a while, we went to the memorial because yeah. I uh-huh. I would go every year because it, it makes my memorial? mother happy. It's um honoring Christ's death is what it is. Oh, okay. Um and I went and the and the the person I went with was very much like uh, this is like Catholicism, which I never went to Catholic uh, really? Catholic church before. In what so way? I, I think because um there was the drinking of the wine and the taking oh, okay. of the wafers, but not everybody did it huh. um, because Jehovah's Witnesses only believe a certain number go to heaven and the rest will be resurrected on earth. I was just, was their belief. I was so. just listening to somebody discuss um, Jehovah's Witness um, uh, services and I didn't right. really, I realized I knew nothing about them because I'd never been to one. <laughs> and I understood a lot. And I was just like, oh, and they, I think, um, now correct me if I'm wrong, but they were saying that it's like kind of very like orderly. It is like, it's kind of very organized and and almost it's not super, it's certainly not that kind of like passionate, like maybe like passionate speaking from the state. No, right. Right. It's, it's very like kind of calm. It is. It does tend to be that I, I, and what's, what's interesting is, is that whatever I got in Little Rock, Arkansas on Mm -hmm. a Thursday night or a Sunday, they were getting in, I don't know, Brooklyn or they were getting in California. So it's like the same everywhere. It may not be on the same day, but yeah, it is the same. Well, that's also kind of has a little bit of a tie with like, um, I don't know if, I think Catholicism also shows what I don't know. Right. Like how, cause again, like, I don't know. I didn't grow up with it. There are comparisons between, cause Jehovah's Witnesses, that religion that kind of teeters on Christianity and Judaism. There's that. Oh, in what way? Um, there's certain things that are very, that are very, uh, Jewish in tone. So they don't believe in hell. Okay. They, they don't, they don't believe well, that's that. awesome. Like why yeah. are there more people? This is, I think, witnesses? well, there's other reasons maybe why they're not, but <laughs> I always wondered, it was just like, you're just like well, I mean, there's still believing. a Christian religion. So, so for example, I mean, sexuality is purely heterosexual right. or, and, and, um, because it's a religion based on com- conversion, you, not everyone is like my grandparents or my parents who mm-hmm. are very liberal in scope. You know, yeah. how, you know how, when you like learn to play piano or you get into something right away, you go whole hog, like you're really 
really in it. And a lot of the people who convert in tend to be very strict in their Mm -hmm. thinking when there's really, if you get down to the base of what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, as my grandparents taught me, there's not a lot of strictness of right and wrong. There's choice. But I feel like that, that kind of goes across the board for like, I, 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 in a lot of religions, like when somebody converts, like the people who kind of grow up with it a lot of right. times are a little more like, eh, well, oh, yeah, you can interpret this a lot of different yeah. ways. They tend to be, have a little more even temper yeah. about it. And then you have that person who like, like I lived a wild life. <laughs> yes. Like, yes. Well, and they met, tend to be the ones who are very like dogmatic about I it. Cause it's like people, this fear of returning to their old ways. Absolutely. Well, like I met, I met a kid, not a kid. He's my age. Um, back in Florida, um, and several others who were like, Oh, I wasn't allowed to go to the circus. And I'm like, what? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm screwed because I, my dad and mom took me to the circus all the time. That's not a Jehovah's Witness belief. I don't know who told you that. So they were, a, they were, a, they were a Jehovah's Witness. They were too. former Jehovah's Witness who and said they, they weren't allowed to go to the weren't allowed to go. And then someone else told me they weren't allowed to eat cotton candy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my parents have really did a number on me if that's a real belief. Because <laughs> so I, I was very fortunate. And also, you know, coming, coming out as gay, a lot of Jehovah's Witness families, not, I shouldn't even say a lot. I feel like as a gay man, a lot, we feel like they're going to push us away and not talk to us anymore. Yeah. And I don't have a single family member that doesn't talk to me. So it's, it's all personal choice. Yeah. Well, sorry, Winchu. We uh, okay, ignored sorry, you. Winchu. <laughs> we went from 1300 to 2018 in a matter of two minutes. But that's okay. It's okay. That's why we do this. I mean, it's all still about religion. It and, is. And that's, so it's not, it's not so off topic. Right. Well, and that's part of the, well, but nonetheless, I mean, if you want to circle it back, that's part of our, 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 our personal wisdom anyway, right? Is our stories. My well, story yeah. is my experience. My experience was Jehovah's Witness. That was my childhood. Yeah. Um, and, and we're, as we're, as we're looking at, at somebody who's about to, to write and record and you know that's something you you've hit upon before is yeah. that the importance of that of of sort of writing and of, of recording our stories absolutely and that that's our sense of self you know yeah that's, well and i i think that's what i was saying even was saying earlier when you, we were just talking in the room is that um we don't know our stories anymore because mm-hmm. we don't write them down i mean I'm, I'm looking at something from 1300 right like here's a story that has been preserved and 600 years later, it's returned. I mean, that's the importance of art, whether it be visual or written or theatrical. Like, that's how you maintain story mm-hmm. is you put it on paper, you put it on canvas, you uh, put it on stage or whatever it is. Um, and that's why I'm kind of a little bummed that nowadays we tend to forget where we come from and not necessarily Ireland or any <laughs> of that, but just like something as simple as how did your parents meet? Yeah. You know, yeah. and putting that on paper and remembering that forever. Yeah. Because it makes us who we are. And for our final clip from episode 44, I was speaking with artist Brittany Bicknaver about being a covert stutterer, which brought up a lot of comparisons to coming out. I've used this clip in a past best of episode, so I apologize for being repetitive, but it's a good fit for this episode and it's one of my favorites. You were probably, so I was thinking about this, you were probably actually the first podcast host I I actually knew in a yeah. way because you were yeah. hosting a Stuttercast. Yeah, or, or it was a podcast called Stutter Talk. Stutter Talk. Okay. Yeah, it was during the time of, um, so I was a covert stutterer 
growing up. This and I, is so fascinating. I remember when you told me this and I was just yes. like, what? Yeah. Like, I did not understand. First of all, I remember when you you said like, I'm a stutterer and I was like, no, you're yeah. not. Well, cause I could hide it really well. That's so crazy. Yeah. And I actually just finished up a round of speech therapy two weeks ago. So you're still like, yeah. so what is, this is so fast. I love this. Like, I, <laughs> and that's why I, like, I remember when you telling me like, oh, I'm hosting this podcast and like, I'm a guest host and like you'd been on it and I would like listen to it. And I was just like, so intrigued by it because it was like this whole world that I knew nothing about yeah. and in the whole, like, I don't know. It was just a very empowering, I, I don't know. I thought it was really Thank empowering you. I story really appreciate to me. that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, um, I think, you know, I had, uh, just recently in the past couple of years, a lot of, uh, problem, well, a lot of like almost inner questions about my identity as some, you know, as, as a human who speaks, you know, am I a stutter? Am I fluent? You know what I mean? And, and, and just like straddling like both of those worlds. And, and we had like a couple of therapy sessions with my speech, like pathologist, because it felt so weird. Like I can be like, I, I'm obviously really fluent right now and I can be really fluent for months and then somebody will switch and I will, and I'll be really dis, disfluent. Yeah. Wow. For a couple months. So, um, yeah. So my, uh, yeah, stuttering is, um, it's a cyclical thing, you hmm. know? And, uh, yeah, it was something that when I was little, when you stuttered and you see people's re- re- reactions or the way that children, you know, or, or the way that your peers kind of re- re- react to, and you get the signal, oh, this is something that I shouldn't do. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, and, and not necessarily like anybody told me like, don't do that. You know, it's, it's, it's just those, those, those cues that, um, people give you about something about you, you know what I mean? And then you, and then you're like, well, this is something I need to not share, you yeah. know? So, um, I developed tools of, um, I became a covert stutter and there's people out there whose own spouses don't even know that they stutter because they're able to hide it so well. So I would use like word substitution. I, I, if I, if I felt a stutter coming on and I probably did this with you in my early twenties, if I felt like I was going to stutter on a certain word, I would change the word. You know, which ones are like trig, trigger it. For or, sure. Yeah. Yes. That's so cool. Yes. I mean, it's crazy. It's insane. It's like, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like I, I never, and, and, and I think like at the moment when you were, when I was listening to this, like I did not understand my sexuality very well. Yeah. And I think it like, I don't like, I'm a person who I feel like I have no coming out story because I have like a million. And I actually, I think about listening to that as like, actually like a really important part of like me recognizing, like as you're sitting there saying this stuff about like, you recognize when you get these sort of negative feedback from others yeah, and that changes how you behave. Yeah. And it's like, that is like the queer experience yeah, for a lot totally. of people is yeah. basically you do something and you're sort of chastised for it. And in ways that people maybe don't even realize they're doing it, like mm-hmm. in like these really small ways that are not, you know, for me personally, I don't think I had a ton of people who were like really policing my behavior in a way that was, um, super overt or yeah. any way, but it was yeah. just like very subtle for sure. Yeah. And that changes like how you, you know, what you want to put out there yeah. in the world. And and so it's just like, it really resonated with me when you were talking about that. I was like, God, this is, I like totally understand <laughs> this. And then even like the thing when, you know, I remember you telling me like, oh yeah, I'll like make myself stutter. Like, yeah. That, that was a way for me to, um, because even I, 
you know, my mom always told me, you're going to grow out of it. You're going to grow out of it. So even when I was in college, I had this idea in my head that I was going to grow out of it. You know what I mean? And I had this moment where I was was at work and I was 26 and I was like, holy, you know, like, (laughs) I I don't know if I can. (laughs) I I do. I do keep it like for, for all audiences. I appreciate this. I was like, holy cow, (laughs) I am a grown up, and I still do this. And I had that realization that that it wasn't going to go away. You know what I mean? So I was like, I have to figure out a way to live with this, you know, because I didn't want to hide it anymore because it was tiring. It's so tiring. Oh my gosh. I mean, and that's just like, again, like it's like totally a coming out story in this uh weird way because that is like what everyone describes is like the burden of Uh, the secret and the burden of like, like I, I remember telling somebody here one time, I was like, you know what? Like the best part about coming out is like, you can just like listen to whatever music you want to. <laughs> like because I love that. because I feel like there would definitely be things like it, that was like one and it's really strange because I've always been like sort of like a weirdly flamboyant person in uh-huh. certain aspects but then like I I feel like there would be certain things where I was like I like this but I don't want to admit that I like this because I think it's like way too gay. Like this song is like too gay for me to yeah. like. And that is like a crazy thing. But I, I really do think about it all the time when I'm just like listening to whatever I want. I'm like, because it would also be that kind of like internal struggle too. Like, I don't think I would have like a lot of like secret things I listen to. Yeah. Like it would just be like, I would remove that from the options. And I was like, well, I can't listen to that. It's like too gay. So, yeah. but anyway, I don't even yeah. remember. Yeah. I, I just stole the point, but and just, well, I, I think it's, and I don't know if you experienced this, but, um, so I started teaching at the art Academy last fall mm-hmm. and it was weird to go back there not being a, cause I was a covert stutter going mm. at the art Academy, a student. And now I was going back to the art Academy, not a covert kind of like an, uh, you know what I mean? So it was kind of weird right. and I was, and, and it caused me, you know, some, some anxiety to kind of have this, this new, uh, identity, even though nobody cares and nobody's thinking about I it, mean, you know, what, but I think that's exactly the same thing with like sexuality because yeah, in general, especially when sure. you're, you're talking about a place that's like so progressive and liberal, like, yeah. like obviously like nobody cares. Yeah. Like it's all, in your own head. Yeah. Like nobody actually cares. I, you know, I was just worried about having a huge block and staring at a word and somebody looking at me being like, what happened to you? <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Yeah. <laughs> Were you in an accident or something? <laughs> <laughs> is yeah. it like... I mean, is the, were, were the pressures of teaching, did that in like public speaking make it like harder for you? Or is it I think just for of- sure. And I think, you know, the idea of going back to a place where I had a different identity, hmm. that is the one that I have now, even though it's like, you know, it's not me, you know, it's just, even though it's like a small part of me, you know, yeah. the, you know, obviously like the way that I speak or the way that anybody speaks is a very small part yeah. of who they are. Um, still, I was still having some anxiety about it. Yeah. Yeah. And then that probably, does that make it worse? Like yeah, does the anxiety? Of, or? of course it does. And, yeah. and when, um, when a person decides to not be covert anymore, to not be a covert stutter, their stuttering increases. Oh really? Yes. Because it's it's almost like, yeah, because you're you're trying to sur, sur, suppress something yeah. for so long that that you get skilled at it. You know what I mean? And then once you do, once you do, once you make the, the decision to not do that anymore, it, it kind of has 
has the freedom to, to be what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's just impossible for me to not like make these parallels constantly with like sexuality when you talk about it. Well, I was, I was making those same parallels in my speech therapy that I just finished. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like those same parallels. Like it just, it, the experience of it, like, and as you talk about it, you're just like, Oh my God, it like resonates so, so strongly with me in that way. And even like the idea of, I think like, presenting in that sort of like covert and not covert and the language of that. And like, even the way that homophobia kind of creeps in, in that, like I have to consciously not, um, be sort of judgmental towards somebody who is like super flamboyant or mm-hmm. like there's this idea of like when you've built in like hiding so long yeah. into your life yeah. that you start to be like, what, how how dare they not hide? <laughs> I was like, that's almost the idea, I think, on, on some level. And you'll see that kind of judge, judgment come through in a lot of like gay men, especially I think about what they perceive as like overly effeminate behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's always like, I feel like it's always more about them than it is the other person. You know, it's more about oh, like, sure. you're just deeply uncomfortable yeah, with course. like that totally. side of yourself. Yeah. And you, you spent so long trying to hide that. And it's like that how much of it you can let out and like, it just becomes really fraught. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely does. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have your own conversations around the art. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are No Spectators, The Art of Burning Man, with both phases now open. Be a part of a gallery experience on June 30th at 3 p.m. for PTSD Awareness Month. We'll learn about artists who experience trauma and hear from mental health professionals about the therapeutic use of art. If you were a teacher looking for professional development this summer, sign up for our Summer Teacher Institute on Myths and Mythology. Explore myths through the museum collection, art-making workshops, and field trips. This program is open to teachers of any grade level and any discipline. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and also join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalan. And as always, if you enjoy our show, leave us a nice review or rating. Or you can also take the survey, which helps us learn more about our listeners at CincinnatiArtMuseum.org slash podcast. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum.